So here we are. Great job, Herman. Uh, wonderful uh, leading us there in a time of welcome and reading and prayer. Church family, uh, love to see you uh, online. And um, I'm not going to be, uh, not, not going to not say it. It is very strange. Um, I didn't think that Lord's Day worship would ever include carrying uh, a pulpit from the garage uh, each Saturday night into the living room. Um, and I long to see your faces. As I know, we long to see one another's faces, but it is a little strange. This is our third Sunday, uh, our third Lord's Day together since the full lockdown, and uh, it is Resurrection Sunday. So I believe we're streaming uh, fine there, and um, we'll get underway with the message. The title of the message this morning uh, on this Resurrection Sunday is Jesus is Lord of All. And when it comes to the resurrection, it has been well said that it's not simply a component of the gospel, but the very centerpiece of the gospel. The resurrection isn't an added extra. We shouldn't think of it like that. It is the very crescendo and climax of Jesus' atonement, the work that he was sent by the Father to do. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all is in vain. Uh, all is worthless. If he didn't rise, we never rise. If he stayed in the grave, we will simply stay in the grave. But he has risen. And I know that's the cry on this day. He has risen indeed. That cements the fact that Jesus defeated sin and death, meaning that because of our union with Christ, sin and death no longer have control over us. We are free from the penalty of sin and the power of death. That's praiseworthy. That is incredibly praiseworthy. On the cross, our sin was paid for in full, and by that empty tomb, death has been defeated. This morning, we take a break from the series that we're up, that we're working our way through at present, and those sermons and spend some time together in what will be a bit of a devotional Bible study. This will be more of a Bible study together than a sermon this morning. So I want you to grab your Bibles, and I want us to take some time this morning to look at numerous passages of Scripture as we survey the Savior, Jesus, and His resurrection on this Lord's Day. So to get underway, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, look at verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. The context here is that of being justified, meaning to be declared legally right before God. The question and the context here, and Paul is asking a question in this passage here, is asking, is justification by works of the law or is it by faith? And Paul is laboring here in this portion to show us that there is no way a person can be saved as a result of good works, as a result of trying to do things in order to find favor with God, which literally is what every single other religion in the entire world tries to do. That's where Christianity stands alone, literally, as the only faith that denies the ability of anyone in mankind to save themselves through doing good works. 
Instead, look at verse 24. But for our sake, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. It'll be those who believe by faith, by trust, that God raised Jesus from the dead. It will be they who will be clothed, we see there, credited with a righteousness foreign uh, from ourselves, for we have none, will be forgiven of our sins and will be united to him spiritually. We see here from verse 25 that Jesus was delivered over. He was delivered over as a criminal, having never committed a crime, right? And on that Friday, upon that cross, he took the full punishment for our crimes against God. And after making atonement for our sins, he was raised up. That is, he was resurrected. And we rejoice in that. We really do. You see, it was our sins that sent him to the cross, and yet he went there out of his love for us. He went there as one condemned that we might go free. But if all we have is a savior who hung upon a cross, then we have nothing. Listen to these following words concerning all of this. Quote, the necessity of the resurrection must be seen against the backdrop of the fact that Christ died as the condemned one. If Christ's death is the last word on that Friday, then it is a judicial declaration that Jesus is a curse of God. For Jesus to remain dead would be evidence that the one who appeared to be the perfectly obedient son was something less than perfectly righteous. Moreover, since believers are united with Christ in such a way that what is true of him is true of them, if Christ remains under the condemnation of God, then believers remain under the condemnation of God as well. After his death, then, Jesus must be justified, vindicated as the righteous son. This is precisely what happens in the resurrection, end quote. So what is the significance of the resurrection? Well, as we get underway here this morning, I want to front load that answer for you this morning by giving you very quickly two, well, three reasons why the resurrection is significant. Number one, it validates Jesus as God. Jesus, didn't he? He repeatedly said with prophetic precision and did the works that only God could do. He said while doing the works of that only God could do, he said that he would rise again and he did. Jesus is God, and we'll see that in a very pertinent passage later on in the Old Testament this morning. Number two, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Listen to Romans 8, chapter 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says this, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that we too shall rise and spend eternity with him. 
we need not fear death. There's a lot of fear of death at the moment. There's a lot of people dying at the moment, as there always has been, as there always will be until the Lord returns. But because of his resurrection, the believer who's united to him, we need not fear death. We will be raised because he was raised. One theologian, George Ladd, he remarked, quote, if Christ is not risen from the dead, the long course of God's redemptive acts to save his people ends in a dead-end street, in a tomb. If the resurrection of Christ is not reality, then we have no assurance that God is the living God, for death has the last word, end quote. Number three, and this is really where I want us to live and camp out this morning. Number three, the resurrection is God the Father's testimony that redemption has been accomplished. The resurrection is God the Father's testimony that redemption has been accomplished. The Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers put it this way. He said, you know that when the prison door is open to a criminal by the very authority that put him there, it evidences that the debt of his transgression has been rendered and that he stands acquitted of all his penalties. When, when a prisoner goes free, when the prison door opens and they allow that prisoner to go free, it is the very authority that put him there that is allowing him to go free. Well, Chalmers continues, when an angel descended from heaven and rolled back that great stone from the tomb, that speaks to us that the justice of God is satisfied, that the ransom for our iniquity has been paid, that Christ has rendered full discharge of all the debt for which he undertook as the great surety between God and the sinners who believe in him, end quote. I want us to camp out on the fact that the resurrection is God the Father's testimony that redemption has been accomplished. And to do that, we need to grasp a few things. It's really, really important. We need to understand that Jesus being laid in the tomb was part of the Father's mission for the Son. Christ was laid in that tomb having been hung upon that cross, right? When Jesus spoke of laying down his life on the cross, he said this, this commandment, to lay down my life upon the cross, this commandment I received from my Father. In John chapter 17, verse 5, which is in that most remarkable chapter, John 17, which really is the true Lord's Prayer, Jesus speaks of the fellowship he has with the Father before the world was, before time began. And in the very Verse prior, John 17, verse 4, Jesus declared that he has accomplished the work the Father gave him to do. So we must never think of Jesus coming to earth and just plowing ahead on his own. Jesus was obedient to the Father, and he always acted consistent with the Father's plan. Today on Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the, fine, the final milestone of that plan. 
Jesus's obedience to the Father's plan led him to the cross. That is why Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, to, to really put fuel in the tank and wind in the sails to understand this concept of there being a predetermined plan in eternity past made by Father, Son, and then applied by the Holy Spirit. Luke 22 says this, that the Son of Man goes just as it had been determined, or more literally in the Greek, according to the determination, according to the predetermined plan as the Son of Man goes. Jesus' mission led him to the cross and into the tomb. But how did he get there? How did he get there? Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7 says, speaking of Jesus, Behold, I, I, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so it's to the scroll of the book we go. Before we get to the scroll of the book, the Old Testament, turn with me to Luke 24 for a moment. Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 1. It says this, But on the first day of the week, that's the Lord's Day, Sunday, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You know this, the women came, the angel declared, you don't need to keep looking for him because he is risen. Then Peter ran to the tomb and looked and couldn't find anywhere. Look at verse 13 of Luke 24. And behold, two of them, that's two of the followers of Jesus, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles for, from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place, Jesus being crucified. And while they were talking and discussing, verse 15, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and are unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since this has happened. But also some women among us amazed. When they were at the tomb early in the morning, they didn't find his body. And they, they had a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of these who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But him they did not see. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, verse 26, Jesus says to them, for the Messiah, the Savior, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? 
Verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, in the scroll of the book, in the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses. Jesus as Savior is spoken of in the Old Testament long before he walked on earth. The Old Testament scriptures unveil for us a God-man Messiah, a suffering servant, and a risen Savior. And so it's to the Old Testament I I want us to go this morning, to the scroll of the book. And so turn with me now in your Bibles as we continue this Bible study this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first prophecy, the first remarks concerning the Savior, the Messiah in all of Scripture. And what we see here is that a literal offspring of Eve, when you read the word seed, it means offspring, a literal offspring of Eve will do two things. Number one, reverse the effects of the fall, the devastation and curse that occurred throughout all the world and the sin that spread to all people in the world. This this offspring will, as a result of the work on the cross, reverse the effects of the fall. And number two, we see here that this offspring, this Messiah, will suffer harm. Will suffer harm. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God declared a curse on the serpent in verse 14. Look there. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. And in verse 15, God says that there will be a battle between the serpent and this offspring. And as a result, the offspring will suffer harm. The Savior will suffer harm. Now, what we can also draw there, obviously, from that word seed or offspring, is that this offspring who will act as Messiah has a human nature, a human nature. So at the very beginning, Moses wrote of Jesus, a savior with a human nature who will suffer. And in order to be laid in a tomb, he must have died. Anyone who's laid in a tomb has died. And we know how this savior died. He died by crucifixion. He suffered crucifixion. But one other interesting observation, important to us as we consider this plan is that before the punishment of Adam and Eve is explained in verses 22 and 24, and before God even mentions punishment for their sin, God actually promises a redemptive plan there in verse 15, doesn't he? That's pretty cool. God isn't reacting to circumstances as they unfold. No, no, his plan from time before past is unfolding from eternity past. He planned everything how gracious our God is to provide a Savior. And we think about that afresh and anew this Easter. Now, I want to remind you of the Jews' view 
of the Messiah, the Jewish view of the Messiah. The view of Israel, even to this very day, is that the Messiah will not suffer harm. That is absolutely absurd in the mind of a Jewish person that the Messiah would suffer harm. And with all that said, I want you to now turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This is a rich psalm for a Christian, isn't it? Psalm 22. It's, a, it's an incredibly moving psalm because it contains within it prophecy uh, regarding Jesus on the cross. I mean, look at verse 16 of Psalm 22 with me. The very end of uh, verse 16, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet. You know, as we read Psalm 22, a question comes to mind, doesn't it? Because this was a psalm that was written of David. It's a Davidic psalm. And if this was written by David concerning David's own suffering, and I want to tell you that it is written by David concerning David's own suffering, how can we then say that this speaks of Jesus? Well, to help answer that, we need to read 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so listen as I read that for you, verses 8 through 17 of 2 Samuel Chapter 7. Now, therefore, thus, uh, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are complete, David, and you lay down with your fathers, that is, you die, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took away it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so what you have happening here is David serving as a foreshadow of the greater David. To come, the Lord Jesus, including in human experience. And that's what's written in Psalm 22. And what I mean by that is this just as David suffered in his reign as king, just as he cried out in the first verse there of Psalm 22, you can look down and see it My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as he suffered in his reign as king, so too will the greater David, the Lord Jesus, suffer to a greater extent. Just as 
David suffered in his role as king, so too does the greater David. Both David and Jesus share in royalty and they share in suffering. In fact, Psalm 132 verse 11 says this, Yahweh has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Listen to this. Of the seed of your body, I will set upon your throne. From David comes the greater David, the Lord Jesus. Now, this is all driven home and nailed down for us in the New Testament because Peter, he appears to have this very view when he preaches that most remarkable sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Let me read verses 29 to 31 for you. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost says this, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew, listen to this, that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead. David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. And so what you actually have here from Peter is Peter drawing from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that I just read, Psalm 132 verse 11, Psalm 16 verse 10, which we'll see later on. He's drawing from that in what he's saying there and really remarkably meaning and teaching us that David himself knew that there was a greater David coming who would both share in royalty and also suffer. And so in Psalm 22 here, what is true for David is ultimately fulfilled and extended in the greater David the Lord Jesus. I want you to turn with me now to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. And look at verse 10. This is Yahweh speaking in verse 10. I, that's Yahweh, will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. I, says Yahweh, will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me. Did you notice that the person speaking here is Yahweh, which means that this is Yahweh speaking of himself? Yahweh is the covenant name of God. They will look on me whom they have pierced. 
Astonishingly, that is Yahweh looking at Yahweh with Yahweh being the one pierced, meaning killed, mourned over. Fascinating. The one pierced is Yahweh. So not only is this Savior planned and promised long ago and spoken of as being an offspring, a literal human offspring of Eve and having a human nature, we see here from this verse that the Messiah, the pierced, killed, cut-off Messiah, Savior, is also Yahweh. Remarkable. How can Yahweh be pierced? Well, that gives new life to the term God-man, doesn't it? Jesus is truly God and truly man, pierced for us, slain for us, laid in a tomb for us as part of fulfilling his father's mission as the son. This commandment, he said, I received from my father. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Part of that will was being delivered up for our sin to make atonement that we looked at on Good Friday. And part of that was laying in a tomb. I want you to turn back with me again in this Bible study of ours to back to Psalm 22. Back to Psalm 22. That verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of Jesus on the cross speaks of anguish and separation as Jesus hung upon that cross and the Father momentarily turned his face away and all the wrath of all the believers' sin was laid upon Christ. But we see in Psalm 22, after this cry here and after verse 16, the piercing of the hands and feet, we see a reversal in circumstances. I want you to look at verse 24 of Psalm 22 now. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. As Jesus was afflicted on the cross, as obedience to the Father's will for the first time meant a severing of perfect fellowship and communion with the Father, Because never forget, leading up to this, obedience to the Father's will always meant for Jesus perfect communion and fellowship with the Father. But as he hung upon that cross for the first time ever, obedience to the Father's will meant a momentary separation of perfect communion and fellowship with the Father. Verse 24 here gives us a glimpse into the resurrection, a glimpse into the reversal of the circumstances for the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah, the one who is a literal offspring, human nature, the one who is Yahweh himself. By stating that the afflicted one here was not despised in verse 24 or abhorred. And explaining here that the father's face um, wasn't turned away for good, nor was it says there, nor was his hidden, nor, nor has he hidden his face from him ultimately. But when he cried out to help, when this afflicted one cried to help, 
cried for help. The father heard him. If you flick back to Psalm 16 now and look at verse 10, we now see more than a glimpse of the resurrection. We now see the fullest expression of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you, Yahweh, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David, as we saw, was looking ahead to the resurrection of Jesus Messiah. And that's what we celebrate today. The risen King of Kings. He's risen indeed. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down by my own authority. He says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I have authority to raise it up again. And so we see there that God the Son raised himself from the grave. And yet there's more to the resurrection than just that. Listen carefully to Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. As Paul introduces and opens the epistle to the church there in Galatia, he says this, Paul, an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And so God the Father raised Jesus from the grave. But there's more. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, we read this earlier, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We see there from that, that God the spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So the son raised himself, the father raised the son, and the spirit raised the son. The triune Godhead at work in the resurrection. No surprise because the triune Godhead was at work in the covenant of redemption. Where the plan, the pactum salutis, the eternal plan of God, where God the Father gives a mission to God the Son to die upon the cross for all those that would believe. And then that is the accomplishing of redemption. And then by the Holy Spirit coming after the resurrection that Jesus, after his ascension would sin, then applies that redemption. An intra-Trinitarian work of redemption as well as in the resurrection. On the cross, it was Jesus' humanity that died. His divinity never did. His divinity worked to raise him from the dead. You know, no gospel actually describes the actual event of the resurrection. It just states the fact of the resurrection. As the women stood inside that tomb, they were told, weren't they, by the angel, there's no need. There's no need to look for him anymore because the living one is now the risen one. 
He's risen indeed. The crucified one is now the one who has risen. And with that rising, my dear church family, with that rising, death is swallowed up in victory. Death now has no sting. Death now has no victory. Jesus, the King of Kings, has defeated sin and death. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57, the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He rose victorious, meaning that we, his people, for whom he dies and for whom he rose, we live and ever live victorious, free from the grip of sin and death. And, and, and so what a joy. What a hope, what a grace, what a peace, what a truth, what a saviour. But there's one more important truth to dwell upon this morning. We've seen that Jesus' death and resurrection was all part of the Son's mission given to him by the Father. What I want us to see now is another aspect to this eternal plan. And it's this, that there is a reward that the Father promises to the Son for completing His mission. You see, we are given in Scripture actual dialogue between the Father and the Son. And I want you to turn with me now to Psalm 2. You're in Psalm 16 most likely. And so to flick back now to Psalm 2. Look at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He, that's Yahweh, said to me, that's the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, this is what the father said to the son, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Hear the son, Jesus is speaking about the Father's plan, the Father's decree, where the Father promises the Son a reward for fulfilling His mission. And that is that the Father will give the nations as Jesus' heritage and the very ends of the earth as Jesus' possession. I want you to know we are actually in Scripture, not only given this dialogue of the eternal decree, the plan of God between Father and Son, we're also actually given the very terms of this promise. In Isaiah 53. And so turn with me there to Isaiah 53. Here we as I said, are given the very terms of agreement of this promise. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yahweh was pleased 
to crush him. Speaking of the suffering servant promised long ago, promised back way back in Genesis 3.15, putting him to grief. Now listen to this. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. See what? He will see the nations as an inheritance. He will see the very ends of the earth as his possession. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, so as a result of doing that, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So the father sent the son on a mission to die for sinners, to defeat death for sinners by rising again. And then in doing so, the son receives the nations, which is made up of all those whom he died for, all those that he therefore then justified. It's remarkable. But it's not over. We conclude all this now by turning to the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2. So turn with me there, Philippians chapter 2. A very familiar passage of Scripture, but link it with this, what we've just discussed here about Isaiah 53 and Psalm 2. Link it with this promise given to the Son for fulfilling His mission. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Remember, it's obedient to the Father's will. This commandment I received from my Father, Jesus said. I came to do the will of my Father. By, being, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now look at verse 9. For this reason. For this reason. So as a result of being obedient to the Father's mission, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a result of the Son's fulfilling of the mission given to him by the Father before the world was, the Father gives the nations to the Son. He gives the very ends of the earth to the Son. And he gives the Son the title Lord, Lord of the nations, lords of the very ends of the earth. Right now, 
Right now from heaven, Jesus reigns forever, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He is the Lord over all kings, all presidents, all prime ministers. And they will give an account to him one day. And the only reason that they serve in office is because he has placed them there. Jesus is the Lord over the living and the dead. This world has one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke the world into existence. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And listen to this. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of everything. He is Lord over COVID-19. He is Lord over his church. He is Lord over all governments. When he had made, Hebrews 1.3 continues, when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is Lord. And how he was given that title, Lord, that he will have forever and that he will reign forever, reigning now from on high, he was given that in fulfillment of the mission given to him by the Father. What a wonderful Savior. What a remarkable resurrection. What a hope. What a truth. He is Lord. This Lord's Day, this Resurrection Sunday, I hope, my dear church family, that your hearts are encouraged. You know, Paul said, didn't he, of the church here in Philippi, he said, my brethren whom I long to see. As I look into a camera, I long to see you. I hope that this encourages your soul that we serve a risen and victorious Savior who was obedient to the Father's will out of his love for you and for me. My heart was to try and encourage you with these truths here. He is Lord. All that's going on in our world right now is under his lordship. Nothing happens outside of his reign. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ, there is not a maverick molecule in the universe, as R.C. used to say. I hope that this is a comfort to you, this Resurrection Sunday. For anyone who's listening, watching, is he your lord? Have you bowed the knee and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? I would ask that you would do that today on the authority of the word of God. And as a minister of the gospel, I would say to you that on this day, you must bow the knee and realize that you are a sinner. And that because Jesus paid for your sin upon the cross, you can be free. But because he rose again, 
Not only are you forgiven, but death has no power over you. Because he defeated death. And so come to him this day and find peace in the resurrection. Because you know what? The book of Acts tells us that God has appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness. Because he raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is a certification that the Father's plan of redemption has been accomplished. Today is the day of salvation. He is Lord, Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this opportunity. Lord, how we long to be together in person again. Father, how we rejoice in our union with Christ. Father, we thank you that you, by your grace, planned redemption. You accomplished redemption on the cross. And then you applied that redemption through the work of the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus sent after he resurrected and ascended back into glory. And so, Father, fill the hearts of the church with gratitude. Fill their hearts with thanksgiving. Help us be a people who trust in you, who rest in you, who rejoice in you. And for anyone here who doesn't know the Lord, who hasn't bowed the knee and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, may they do that this day. And may they find in doing that a peace unsurpassable and a joy indescribable and a union with the Lord of all. Be with us today. Encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He's risen indeed. Take care.